sick. You'll be just fine. But the issue of clean drinking water around the world is, is huge. And the idea of having a tap to turn on and to drink from uh, would be a major thing for many villages. So we're going to just drink out of a cup this week as well. And my encourage, if you want to kind of go the extra mile with it, is don't sneak the, uh, into your fridge or your freezer for ice as well, because that's just non-existent uh, around most of the world. And so that's our challenge this week. Now, I've been doing this seven years, and believe me, I've heard most of the reasons, excuses, why people don't join in to this. And I would say 95, 99% of those are, are probably just, are j- just bunk. You, you can do it over the course of the week. If you have a medical issue, by all means, you judge that and, and measure that for yourself. But you can do it. Monday morning, starting tomorrow through Friday at lunch, then have yourself a nice celebration dinner on Friday night. Why? Could you not send money in? Do you not know that there's people poor around the world? I believe that when we put ourselves in a position where we empathize and we feel it, God will speak to us and he wants to do something different. You might have done this for the last 15 years, but this is the year God gets your attention this week to to do something differently than he's asked or than you've listened to in the past. So take those as much as you need for your family. There's plenty of cups on the back table, so everyone in your family uh, can have a cup and take that home. And uh, I'm interested to, to know your stories of how it goes. Now, so uh, last week we handed out the hold in the gospel. If you weren't here, make sure you grab one of those copies because we're challenging you to read through this book or at least get going in it this month. In fact, our small groups are working through curriculum off of that. Two of our small groups launched into it last week, and most of our small groups are picking up this week on it. So grab one of those books. They're free. We're giving them out to, to one for every family in the church. So you'll see that, that uh, that's back there, and that'd be great. Four questions of poverty, the four biggest questions. Let's just jump right into it and answer these. <coughs> Question number one, why are the poor poor? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why are the poor poor? How did they get that way? Do you have a theory on this? Is it that they're lazy and unmotivated? Is it that they just, they just don't want to work? Is it that they lack the, uh, the intelligence that uh, you and I might have? Is it that they just want to hand out instead of mustering up the effort of kind of pulling themselves up out of poverty? Why are the poor poor? I want to challenge you. Be very careful if you carry any of the ideas I just mentioned to kind of cover a blanket statement for all those who are poor around the world. In fact, please don't ever share those because we're going to find that it's not quite accurate. Because if you ever went to a little village that was steeped in poverty, you might have your mind blown if you have those preconceived ideas. Because the first thing you'd notice in a, a village this size is that almost every single person was working. You'd notice that the little children who ought to be in school, but they're not because there's none available, they're working. They're often carrying water back and forth from their village a mile or maybe more, and they have to do that several times a day. You'd probably find the women are beating their laundry against the rocks just just hour after hour, cleaning their laundry that way down by the river. You'd see men or maybe boys, and they're scratching through the dusty garden trying to pull out a few vegetables that they would grow to try to to try to feed their family and their village. Or maybe they're working some labor-intensive job 12 to 14 hours a day for some small, small amount of income. But what you rarely see in a village 
with extreme poverty, what you'd rarely see is people just lying on a hammock or just sitting on their hands waiting around for something incredible to happen. It just, it just doesn't happen. They are all working uh, to survive. They're working. And there's tens of thousands of villages just like this all over the world accounting for millions and millions of people in extreme poverty. So folks, it's a bigger problem. It's a bigger problem than just the preconceived idea that we might have when we drive by or even avoid that person down the street on the corner. And so uh, I've been, and maybe you have too, I've been in several of these, these villages or small towns in Mexico, um, and whenever I think of the plight of the poor, I, I think of the images that I saw when I was there when we were working ministry, and that's how I remember. And so back to the question, why are the poor poor? It still has to be answered, right? Well, technically, it's, it's usually a combination of many things. Generational oppression, government dysfunction, or maybe just out, flat out corruption. It's broken institutions, poor soil conditions. There's droughts, floods, famine, civil war, or all-out border war that goes on. Violence, terrorism, etc. You get the picture. It's a combination of these things. And if we're not careful, we forget all that. And we boil it down to something like that guy on the corner is a lazy drunk. But it's a much more complex issue than that. I want to just add uh, on this point, I want to add a couple minutes of history, if you don't mind, to help you understand why certain poor countries in the world, they have such a struggle pulling themselves up out of poverty. I want to talk to you a moment about the Democratic Republic of the Congo as an example. This is easily one of the most troubled countries in the world. Do you know it's the rape capital of the world? More violence is done to women in the Congo than anywhere else per capita in the world. It's been struck by civil war, and this is going on decades and decades. And during that time, get this, three million people, three million people in civil war have been slaughtered during the decades. You don't read a whole lot about it, mainly because those those who are slaughtered, they're poor. Just don't hear as much. Tragic. There have been uh, multiple coups and murders of government leaders, and all to say, in the Congo, it is just an absolute mess going on to there. You see it every once in a while on the news. In 2004, a major denomination pulled all of their missions work out of the Congo. The head of the missionary effort was quoted as saying this, listen, quote, we're giving up on the Congo. They've screwed themselves up. They're going to have to fix their own country. So they pulled out. You know, I researched the Congo uh, this week. I researched some of the history that I, I wasn't familiar with. And I was amazed and, and somewhat heartbroken at some of the stuff I found. I learned that the Congo, they didn't screw themselves up. In fact, the country was decimated. Do you remember who decimated the Congo, you, you history buffs out there? It, it was Belgium, under whose leadership Leopold II. Now, if you've studied this character, you kind of have an idea of what went on. But if you don't, let me just give you a brief overview. In the mid-1800s, Leopold, he was the king of Belgium, and he wanted to impress the Dutch, the French, the Swiss, all of the people around there in, in the European countries. Uh, <laughs> he wanted to show their wealth and their power. They wanted to make Belgium to have one of these just showpiece-type cities 
with government buildings and world-class schools and roads and, and cathedrals and statues and parks and palaces, all this kind of stuff. But one big problem, he didn't have the finances to do that. So he simply sent tens of thousands of troops over to the Congo, and he took over. I mean, literally took over. The Congo at that time was brimming with natural resources. It was in abundance. It was, a, it was prime real estate. And so when Leopold went in there, he saw his palaces right there. And so he took over for 50 years. And during that time, they enslaved millions of Congolese men and women, and they worked so hard that tens of thousands of them actually died on the work line. And when someone died, they would just push them to the side, and they would put somebody else in the place, and they would just continue on. In fact, one of the, the gruesome things is when someone would slack off, miss quota, their hands, both hands, was cut off. And this is commonplace. This is history. You can look it up. Best estimates are that 10 million Condolees died during the brutal rule and hundreds of million, billions of dollars was taken away from the country to make Belgium what it is. In fact, it, Brussels is a showpiece if, if you've seen pictures or maybe you've ever traveled and been there. And all of it on the blood of the poor people of the Congo. Now, you would think it would be a happy day in the Congo when, when uh, Leopold II passed away, but the only problem was Bel Belgium decided to stay on and continue their rule and their oppression to get this, 1960. It's not that long ago, folks, that it continued on. Then some of the Condolees, they're so angry and frustrated that a coup attempt rose up, and finally Belgium had said, we got away with this about as long as we can get away with this, and we better go on back home, and they did. Now, how are the Congolese, how are they going to lead themselves from this point? They have no leaders. They have no one alive who's ever known anything but oppression and the leading from a foreign country. They don't have a constitution. They don't have working institutions. There's no schools. There's no hospitals. There's no government buildings. There's no infrastructure whatsoever. The infrastructure that we often take for granted or don't even see here in our country. <coughs> so what happens? The country falls into another 50 or 60 years of just chaos. Tribal wars and coups and violence and corruption. All that to say that still today, the Democratic Republic of the Congo is still an absolute mess. I think they're trying to get their act together, but understand, they didn't screw themselves up. It was a rich European country that came in and screwed them up. And now they're having to dig out of it. And so when we think about many of the poor countries around the world, we have to think about their history and this story holds for so many of the countries we would describe today as third world countries. They were decimated at one point with a bigger, stronger, richer, more powerful country that came in and took what they wanted. So it's important that we stay active in these areas. It's important that as a church we try to make a difference and we send even whatever little amount, whatever little work we can do, whether through our resources or through our hands, it's significant. So, okay, let's lighten things up a little bit. All right, we'll move on to our next one. Next question. How serious is the problem of poverty worldwide? How serious really is this issue? Well, instead of me uh, boring you with a bunch of uh, stats and a long list of stats, I love the stats, but I'm reminded not everybody does. Uh, let me just draw you a famous champagne glass. Now, I want to warn you that what you're about to see might be the most 
amazing artwork you've ever seen in your life. So if you need to take a moment to gasp or to just, you know, let it settle in while you're looking at it, it's okay. Um, I'll give you that second and then we'll pick up and go on. This is the famous champagne glass. Oh. <coughs> yeah, thank you. Everyone who works with the poor understands the, the metaphor of the champagne glass. Uh, now, um, this is just really the best I could draw it. So um, if it doesn't look like what I just said it was, just, just you know, get over it. So this champagne glass, uh, it's here. And, and, and you can tell that the champagne part is at the top. You know, and then this is the stem running down. And all of these lines signifying champagne, the good stuff, you know, all the way down here to the base. Okay? All right? So that's what we're, we're working on here. Now, down this, this side, you're going to see this is the world's population, right? Broken up in just 20% increments. Five different increments here, 20% of the world's population. Everyone who lives in the world is this category down this, this side, okay? Now, over here, the, the champagne glass and then these percentages, this is the world's wealth on this side. And we're going to compare it here. So if you look at this chart, this is what we're looking at. That what we find here is that 20% of the world's population live on 80% of its wealth. So 20% are enjoying a really good life on 80% of the wealth of the world. And so you can see the big part of the sham. I mean, they've got all the bubbly up here uh, at the top. And 20% live on 80% of the wealth. If we go down to the next 20%, we see 13% of the next 20%. 13% of the world's wealth they live on. So it's a little, little wider and fatter up here at the top. But as we work ourselves down, you see how it progresses down to the bottom, where we see the final 20%, this lower 20%, they live on 1%. 1% of the world's wealth. So the bottom line when we look at this is four-fifths of the world is living on very little of the world's wealth. Four-fifths of the world. Maybe you're familiar with the 80-20 principle. There's actually a famous leadership book that was written by it that shows how this 80-20% principle shows up on all walks of life. It's so true when we talk about the poor here. And so that means one-fifth of the world lives with plenty. And this wealth gap, think about it, this wealth gap is so frustrating to people down here at the bottom of the champagne glass. Why? Because there's no champagne down there, or very little champagne to share or to enjoy down at the bottom. And it's frustrating. They live on nothing or very little. And so these poor people, they look up and they see this upper 20% or they see this, this wealthy just swimming in the champagne up here and enjoying the top of this glass. And guess what? It's frustrating to them. And it's frustrating. And so if you ever wonder why when you watch the evening news, you see sometimes people throwing rocks or, or bottles or overturning cars or, or burning tires in the town square, it's because they've been beat down. They've been beat down there in that level of the glass and have that much of the world's wealth, wealth to try to distribute around. And, and the people up here, they're like up holding, you know, important meetings, you know, in, in world capitals, in London and Dubai and New York and places like that. 
And usually those big gatherings, you know, they're not usually about solving the issues at the bottom of the champagne glass. They're usually about figuring out how they can stay where they're at or maybe even increasing the top of the glass. <clears throat> Whenever you hear about someone paying $30,000 to have a dinner with a world leader, they're really working on the issue down at the bottom of the glass. And so these people at the bottom, they get so frustrated, so incredibly frustrated all across the world, and they just lose hope. And at the end of their hope, sometimes they even throw a bottle over a wall. And I wonder if I might not do the same. Which brings us to question number three. Can the poor be lifted out of poverty? Can they be lifted out? The answer is a resounding yes, they can. They can be lifted out. But there's like this fine print I need to walk you through today. The poor can be lifted out of poverty, but it's a little more complicated than the average person might think. Certainly more complicated than I thought it at many points of my life. You don't have to raise your hand this morning, but uh, many of you I know have supported, through some organization you've supported or sponsored a kid over the year with some type of, of money per month through some organization. Six of you did it last week. You're to be commended. I was very proud of you to hear that when, when Caroline's Promise came and six new kids were sponsored. They had 27 left. You filled six of those. If you thought, oh man, I didn't get signed up, I was thinking I was wanting to do that, then just write that on your communication card and we'll get you set up with the right person. Love to, to even do more than six. But you've done this, uh, I'm sure, and um, many hundreds of thousands across our nation have done this. They've sponsored a child. And uh, some of you have done it through uh, Compassion International or World Vision or maybe through the Wesleyan Church through Global Partners uh, as well. So uh, what happens when you sponsor a child? Again, um, some amazing artwork. Thank you. Thank you. All those would be up for silent auction afterwards. So what happens when you sponsor a child? Well, the first way you th we think of it often is, is this. You say, okay, 35 bucks, right? I, I, I sponsored or whatever it is for your organization. 35 bucks I sponsored. And you say, um, I'm going to take $35 and I'm going to send it to World Vision or Compassion International or whatever organization. And they're going to take a couple bucks off for overhead and administrative, and, and you know, nobody's really arguing that. It has to happen. And then uh, what they're going to do is they're going to fly 20 and a 5 over to this little kid in a village, and he's going to stick it in his pocket, walk around. That's how we kind of think sometimes. And this, this kid's living you know, high on the hog, walking around because he was so blessed to have you sponsor him. And he's walking around with 25 bucks in his pocket. That's how I used to think it worked as well. I thought, you know, this guy exists, uh, you know, and I, he gets 35 bucks. They, take, they do some of their work, and, and then the kid winds up with 25 bucks in their pocket. And he's walking around the village, like, buying things, you know. Um, you want Coke? I got, I got some cash. I'll get you Coke. So, and that's kind of what he's doing. That's kind of what I thought. That was my vision I had in my head. But when I studied more about this, what groups like World Vision were doing, here's what I learned. And, and by the way, um, you know, I still love World Vision and what they're doing. If you followed the news and you know a few weeks ago they, they, they had a little slip-up and they self-corrected it very quick. And I strongly believe in what Richard Stearns is doing and, and support. In fact, he's the author of the book that we've put in your hands to work through this month. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you can Google and you can, you can figure it out. Imagine my surprise when I learned 
that not all of my money that I was sending over ended up into the pocket of the kid that I was sponsoring. And, and so uh, I, here's what I learned. Um, do you have a minute if I share it with you? <laughs> what are you going to say? I mean, what are you? <laughs> I don't know. So a uh, sponsor group or the company or the ministry, they would ask, they would say, Tom, do you want your child to live? And I would say, well, yeah, I was hoping they would probably live. Okay, so here's what we did. We took a little bit of your sponsor money, and we combined it with a little bit of other sponsored money, and we dug a well in their village so they would have clean drinking water. And, you know, they could stem. Because if they don't, you know, that's like one of the number one sources of death around the world, to not have clean drinking water. And, and so we did that in the village where they live. And I'd say, I'd say man, that's good with me. Excellent. I love that. And they'd say, I we took a tiny portion of your scholarship money and we taught the farmers in your village or we taught some people to be farmers in that village. And so we taught them how to better plant crops and yield crops and get bigger crops so that the village would have more food and could sustain itself and didn't have to drive to markets and, and pay crazy amounts of money for the stuff that they actually could grow. And I'd say, yeah, that's great. I'm all for that. And then we thought your kid might like to have access to vaccinations and just at, at least limited medical uh, um, opportunities. And so we took a little of the scholarship money and we built and we equipped a local health clinic there. And they get the medicines and vaccinations. And I would say, well, I'm all in for that, right? You don't want a simple little illness to kill a kid. And we assume you wanted your child to have a chance to go to school. Well, yeah. And so what we did was we took a little bit of your sponsor money, we, we paired it with other sponsor money, and we built a school right in the village. And because you have to have a teacher, we hired a teacher, and that teacher is teaching in the school now. And they, they have the chance now to go to school and learn a life skill one day and, and actually graduate. And of course, we thought you wanted your kid to come to know Jesus Christ. We just assume that you would want that. And I'd say, absolutely, absolutely. And so they say, well, we help support a little church there. In fact, we built the church a few years back, and we're supporting that church. And he has a great little pastor, but he has no one to pay him, so we're helping to pay him so that he stays there. And he has incredible programs, and a lot of those kids are going to that church, and they're getting saved. And I'd say, right on. That's exactly what I want. And on and on that person could go describing all the ways that organization attempts to lift people up out of poverty, not just the individual, but the entire village that that person is in. And I really, I see, I could see for the first time how incredibly complex this issue of poverty is. And if you just fly $20 and a $5 bill over to the country and the kid sticks it in their pocket, it just doesn't fix anything. And so... It's incredibly complicated. You've got to change. You've got to develop an entire community transformation plan in order to lift this village out of poverty. In fact, Richard Stearns, the author of the book that we're reading, he's fond of saying this. <coughs> it really is rocket science. <laughs> That's what he says. You can lift people out of poverty, but it's exceedingly complicated. It takes a lot of smart people doing a lot of great things to do it, and then it, it takes buy-in all around the world from obedient people like you and me to get on board and to sponsor it as well. So, can the poor be lifted up? Yes, it's complicated. Quickly, to the fourth question. And I think this is a significant question. Are we making any progress? Are we making any progress at all? I, I, I don't know if you think like me sometimes. Maybe I get a little cynical. Um, <coughs> but sometimes I see the Saturday afternoon commercials on these issues 
And it looks like the same commercial I saw when I was nine years old, you know, and I'm 21 now. Oh, a few years later. It looks like the same commercial I've seen 30 years ago. It's the same commercial that I've seen. I'm thinking, are we making any progress at all? Is there any progress whatsoever, or is it just, is it just the same, or is it worse? Now, this may surprise you, but the answer I actually found, the answer is yes. It is a resounding yes. These organizations that are working so hard uh, in the field, in, in famine relief especially, these organizations like World Vision and Compassion International, and, um, they've actually come up with this new group of data. It just was released here recently, this, this line of data on world famine and world hunger. And so this is like fresh information you're going to get. This is reliable information right from these large organizations. And the number of people in extreme poverty. Now, extreme poverty, it's, this is described as people who have no reliable food supply or clean water or health clinics or medicines available. None of that available at all. That's what it means to be in extreme poverty. That the percentage of people trapped in extreme poverty has been cut in half in the last 30 years, more than in half. It's gone from 42% down to 17%. In the last 30 years, that's a huge drop-off and should be a great, a great encouragement to us. In fact, here's what they said that they project but that by 2035, 2035, that's not too far away. That's our lifetime, folks. That by 2035, that this number, this percentage of people trapped in extreme poverty can reach this. Get this. Zero. That's what they're projecting by 2035 at the, at the current pace, that it can be zero. In our lifetime, that's ridiculous. I would have never thought that. Tremendous growth in this area. Secondly, uh, illiteracy rates worldwide have dropped from 70% all the way down to 20%. 70 to 20? That means education efforts make a huge difference in the past 30 years. If you've ever supported a school or ever done anything like that, we're doing that with Caroline's Promise. In two weeks when we take our offering on May uh, 18th, we're sending 100% of that money to Caroline's Promise. And you know, they're building, they're expanding. Actually, they've had a school. Their school, for this reason, you can be part of that, that, that 70 to 20 and then working on that 20% as well. Thirdly, uh, did you know that infant mortality rates have been cut in half in the last 30 years? And that should be cause for a lot of rejoicing for us. And fourthly, the number of AIDS-related infections and deaths have been cut in half in 25 years. Now that's huge, because 25 years ago, we thought that was the thing. That was the thing that would spread so rapidly around the world that there'd be nothing we could ever do about it. And we found this, this reduction in half in the last 25 years. And this study goes on and on, but I'm just trying to convince you that to never fall into despair in thinking that this, these efforts do nothing, or never grow cynical thinking that poverty will, will never be combated in any way. Is it a huge problem still? Absolutely. But we're seeing progress in this area, and you've been part of that. So let me wrap this up. I want to say two things to you as your pastor, and I mean these from my heart this morning. One, uh, I want to commend you as a church. I want to commend you for all the ways that you've stepped up in the past three plus years since I've been here, in particular on behalf of the poor. And 
I want to thank you for stepping in and and really dealing with the plight of the poor. It is so easy to say, well, we're just a small church. I mean, when I got here, there was, there was about 50 of us or so, you know, looking at each other on Sunday mornings. That number has grown. But we're still just a small church. What, I mean, what impact, what difference could a small church make? And I feel like that excuse was just X'd out. And I want to commend you for what you've done over the last three-plus years. I want to thank you for stepping up to the plight of kids in our school system in 2011. It would have been very easy to just be cynical and say, you know, there's no hope there. Um, but you didn't do that, and we packed backpacks full of food and sent those out. I want to be, uh, thank you for supporting this well that was dug through Global Partners in 2012. Now, we just started out trying to fund water filtration units. Those are things that they have to carry back and forth from the water, but but because of the offering that came in and because we had the opportunity to partner with another global partners group, we were able to actually have a, a well dug or be part of a well being dug somewhere in, in a village, one of our global partner villages. And that's huge. I want to thank you for embracing, you may not remember this, but embracing a, a Korean family that came to our church for about five months. They didn't even sp- hardly speak English. And I have no idea why they popped into this family. But you embraced them and loved them, and you learned that there was some significant health concerns, and you just loved them right through it. I want to thank you for that impact you made on their lives. I still get Facebook messages almost weekly from some member of that family. This, I believe, is the most compassionate congregation I've ever been a part of, that your willingness to embrace issues and be, have compassion on people. And I also believe that you are... I don't, think, I don't know if you think of you, yourself as intellectual, but the, the, the intellectual approach in really dealing with and wrestling with the issues of poverty and how complex it is, that you didn't, you didn't decide just to send your money up to Lot 2540. You decided to go up to Lot 2540. You decided to sit, many of you, at a table where somebody was being assessed, and when you walked away from that assessment, you thought... How in the world is that box going to fix all their issues? You knew right away it's much more complex, and so you were part of understanding how these all pieces, these pieces go together to help in their life. That's being intellectual about the complexity of this issue. And you've done this because you've been willing to learn on one side, but you've been willing to serve. And so I want to thank you for that as your pastor. And I want to just thank you for placing others before yourself. And I'm incredibly proud of you. It's one of the greatest things that I get to write. In fact, my former pastor, who is a pastor of a a church of 24,000, so it's not like we're, hey, Tom, hey, Bill, you know, kind of thing. But I actually wrote him an email thinking maybe his eyes would never see it because I wanted... I wanted to kind of brag on you a little bit and what the Lord was doing in our church in the last three years in this issue because that church is one of the four leaders uh, in our world on these type of efforts. Do you know that you've given nearly $20,000 in the last three years on compassion-related efforts? Nearly $20,000, you know, for a church our size, that's, that's tremendous. And that's, you know, above and beyond your regular giving and uh, the regular things we do to care for our community and help. These are like compassion-related issues, and that's amazing. So I want to commend you. Can you give yourself a hand this morning? So it's okay to give yourself a hand. Yeah. <clears throat> You're incredibly humble because that hand was weak. Oh. But number two, I want to challenge you for more. I really do. I'm going to push and challenge you for more. 
in the next few weeks and months, I, I just believe God will be challenging you to go further in this issue of compassion. Now, I follow many churches, uh, many pastors on Facebook and churches on Facebook and whatnot. And <coughs> over the course of three months, four months, six months, a year, you get a, you get a decent feel of what's really centrally important to a church. And I want to challenge you that when somebody looks at us and they look at what we're doing, I want them to say that church is seriously committed to justice and compassion issues. It doesn't have to define every percentage of what we do here. We'll have great music and a good time and, and stuff like that. But I want it to define who we are. And so I want to challenge you for more. Because I believe God will be challenging many of you individually to go further in this area of justice and compassion. And I want to challenge you to say yes to him. When he, when he pushes on you. I want to challenge you to give huge on May 18th during our celebration of Hope Offering. You know where it's going, so I want to challenge you to just give huge. Sacrifice something the next couple weeks or in the following six months if you have to. Whatever the Lord puts on your heart, then, <coughs> then give huge on that offering. I want to challenge you to, to give up some time this week or give up what you normally do to really plug into this week of solidarity to really lead your family this way. And maybe you're sitting there as an adult and you think, well, you know, I've done this many times and it's good, but, um, but I understand the poor and we serve. But maybe your kid who's sitting at the table with you needs this type of impact. They need to see this. Lead your family that way this week. I'm going to challenge you to, to get up to lot 2540, especially as they get into their new location. And I want you to serve the poor. Maybe you fill a box now and you send food up. Keep doing that. But maybe what God really wants you to do on top of that is get in your car and go up there and start serving and seeing really what they're doing in the poorest county in North Carolina. And for some of you, I want to challenge you to launch something new in this area, something brand new. Uh, you just, whatever God places on your heart, just go for it and launch something. The things we've talked about, the things that we support, it all started with somebody who said, God's pushing on my heart, and then they stepped out to do it. And so I want you to do that this week. Can I brag on one of you this week? One of you was, was kind of moved by um, a little bit of a, a, a need for food and wanting to get some kind of some protein to some kids. And they needed 15 packs, just 15 packs of food. And so they called up a store because they, they kind of didn't want to get anything with preservatives. So they said, I'm going to call Whole Foods, you know, some, some more healthy food, see if I can get 15 packs of some type of protein, right? <coughs> and this person, when they called and they talked to the manager and explained the whole thing, and Whole Foods turned around and donated 600 items for that. 600. That's huge. Can I tell you something about this person? They just came to know the Lord as their, as their Savior just a couple months ago. And just digging in God's Word and reading and so moved by their heart that this type of compassion issue was what they launched and did just a week ago. Amazing stories like that. I want to challenge you, if God pushes on your heart, launch into it. Do something. And I promise you, your church family will be here to support and empower you and stand alongside of you if that's what you need from us. But we'll help you succeed. Final question I have for you today. And you can feel free to write the answer in your communication card if you so desire. Um, I'd love to read those and pray over those. What role, what role are you going to play in offering compassion and justice to the poor of our world? What role are you going to play? Because if, if you're not a believer uh, in, in Christ, if you're not a Christian, don't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're still searching, well, you can kind of wrestle with that question on your own. 
um, and that's okay. You can choose, choose yes or choose no. But if you're a believer in Christ, we have to answer this question. We have to wrestle with this question because it's what our, our Lord and Savior did for most of his three years of ministry. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this morning and, and for this, this issue of the poor. <coughs> Not because, Lord, we want to see more poor, but Lord, it gives us an opportunity to stand up and to do something. It gives us a, an opportunity to, to stand up and, and impact somebody and, and, and work in somebody else's life that, that has little or has nothing. And Lord, I would guess in this congregation right here and right now, there's somebody that has pushed it away for a long time or they developed an incredibly cynical thought about the poor. And this might be the morning right here, right now, where you are grabbing their heart and saying, think otherwise, and then act. And if that's you this morning, just say yes. Just be obedient to the Lord and say yes. You don't have to do it for any other reason other than that God has led you and he's tugging on your heart and do it. And Lord, we'll, we'll crave the testimonies of what your people are doing on behalf of the lives of others. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Man, well, thank you uh, for, for letting me share that this morning. I thank you that I could actually share with you and, and not even share one scripture this morning, which is not our normal mode of operation, but us still talk about an incredibly important issue. Next week, we're actually going to dive into what God's Word says a little bit more about this issue of justice and compassion, so I encourage you to come and be a part of that. Take as many of these as you'd like today, and then one final thing I want to tell you. Um, in two weeks from today, on May 18th, is our, our all-church meeting, and uh, we're going to be talking about, we're going to be voting on our budget and voting on our, our LBA, but we're also going to be talking about our, our building and our future uh, <laughs> just where we're headed. And you know, there's one building we've looked at. I put that in the email. We'll give you an update in two weeks. And by then, before then, we'll, we'll have a really clear idea on the board if we're going to step forward on that building or not. But we've done a lot of preliminary work on that. Um, but we really want to make sure you're here on May 18th, that Sunday, to walk through that. Because if you have a question, it would be vitally important to raise your hand and ask it that Sunday. It makes it a whole lot easier for me during the week um, when you know I might get the same question seven or eight more times to come and, and be a part of that discussion. But I think your LBA will have most questions answered when we discuss it with you, but we want to make sure you're here uh, as well. Final thing I want to say is, um, <clears throat> is y we hit... We w went really, really strong for four or five months uh, in our giving, and I was, I was pretty thrilled with what, uh, what was going on in that area. Um, March, a little bit under. April was really, really a rough month, and I, I'm not totally sure why that is, because uh, nationwide, usually April is a solid month in church giving. Um, but uh, I'm certainly committing that uh, to prayer if it's been a struggle for you or if there's been some attack, spiritual attack in some area uh, for you. But I, I want to just make sure you know that because the last couple Sundays we haven't had the numbers in there. Um, April, was, April was tough. So I, I want to really ask you, get before God on this issue of tithing and giving. And uh, let's, let's make sure at very least in our church we're hitting budget every single month without fail so we can fund not only the future but the ministries that are going on currently. And I appreciate you uh, letting me share that uh, briefly with you there. So I'll turn it over to our ushers. They're going to come take uh, our morning offering, throw your communication cards in there as well. And uh, we'll let our praise team uh, send us out singing one more.